The Journal presents the Good Information Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Good Information Podcast, a series where the Journal gets to grips with 15 major topics that our audience has told us are impacting their daily lives and focusing their minds on the future. I'm Susan Daly, Managing Editor of The Journal, where the Good Information Project has been giving readers the opportunity to engage directly with editors and journalists on these issues. With you, we've looked at their impact on Ireland and on our place in the wider EU. In this episode, we are asking, what are we getting out of being a member state of the European Union? For the 50th year anniversary of Ireland voting to join what was then the European Economic Community, we are examining how aligned we now feel with the European project. What do we think of when we think of the EU? What are the positives and negatives of being part of a larger decision-making block? Does its actions on priority issues such as climate change match ours? We'll answer these questions and more, but here's what you told us about how you view Ireland's membership of the European Union. Sugar mountains, butter mountains and food thrown away in the 80s. Inflation due to the euro, banking bailouts, free movement of people with little or no guard vetting, and having to hold token referendums until we get the answer they want us to give. The economic benefits speak for themselves, but probably more than anything, the social change that EU membership has been a catalyst for is massive. We were a republic in name before the 1970s, but really a few churchmen were actually in charge. The connections made with real secular democracies on the continent informed and galvanised action to put church control in the bin and bring in legislation for basic rights that it would amaze young people of today to know that we didn't have before the early 90s. Let the Brits do what they want, but the EU has been good for Ireland. It would be better if we had better negotiators. There are overwhelming positives having joined the EU but we've gotten shafted a good few times. For example, losing our fishing waters or burden with paying 42% of all the EU's bank debt. So what are the facts of the matter? In our next segment, Good Information Project producer Carl Kinsella guides us through the public sentiment in the Republic of Ireland on the EU and what our economic and political connections are to the bloc. Received wisdom would suggest that Irish people are very happy to be part of the European Union. In this case, that wisdom is robustly reinforced by polling data. Surveys conducted over the last five years by European Movement Ireland in conjunction with Red Sea have found that Irish people overwhelmingly support Ireland's membership in the EU. Since 2017, satisfaction with Ireland's place in the EU has ranged from 84% to 93% and is currently at 88%. Commitment to the EU is strong among the young and the old, with 91% of those between 18 to 24 approving of the EU, and 92% of those over the age of 65. It is unambiguously one of the most unifying elements of Ireland's current social landscape. According to that same poll, 8 out of 10 people will also tell you that the EU has had a positive impact on their lives since Ireland joined in 1973, compared to just 9% who would say the opposite. Intra-EU trade accounts for 41% of Ireland's exports, Belgium and Germany making up 11%, while 38% of imports come from EU member states, France 11% and Germany 9%. 
According to the latest report by European auditors, Ireland has been a net contributor to the EU for the past three years, with the state paying €360 million more into the EU budget in 2020 than it received. As of 2022, however, Ireland is receiving €915 million in grants from the EU's COVID recovery fund until the end of year, and the state also received €2.47 billion in loans from a European Commission fund to protect against unemployment risks during the pandemic. Ireland's relationship with the EU hasn't always been as clear-cut. The infamous rejection of the Lisbon Treaty by referendum, a decision that was reversed a year later, stands as hard evidence that Irish people remain resistant to certain elements of the EU. This is similarly borne out in the Red Sea poll, which finds that Irish people are more divided on the question of whether Ireland should be more involved in the EU's defence and security cooperation. The poll was taken three weeks after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but support for the idea was just 59%. One quarter of people are against the idea and a further 14% say that they don't know. The latest Eurobarometer winter poll conducted at the end of last year found that almost two-thirds of Irish citizens trust the European Parliament, the European Commission, the European Central Bank and the European Council. This is significantly higher than the EU27 average. The EU average level of trust in these institutions tends to be 50% or less. Asked about whether they are optimistic for the future of the EU, a staggering 88% of the 1,006 Irish respondents said yes, making us by far the most optimistic country in the bloc. Portugal are second at 77%, with Greece bottom of the table at 45%. The war in Ukraine has represented perhaps the harshest test of European togetherness since the turn of the millennium. In a Eurobarometer poll conducted this April, the views of Irish people with regard to the war largely aligned with the average respondent. Irish people were more likely to support reducing European dependency on Russian oil and gas. Irish people were also more likely than average to believe that the EU moved fast in response to the invasion. 81% of Irish people agreed with the sentiment since the war started, the EU has shown solidarity with Ukraine. All in all, Irish people remain staunchly supportive of the EU as an idea, in practice and as a part of Ireland's collective future. Thanks, Carl. Now let's get some key insights from reporter Lauren Boland, who is just back from the European Parliament and can fill us in on what's happening there that is going to affect our life here in Ireland and how much influence we have on that. Welcome, Lauren. When we think about the power of the EU to reach consensus across member states to achieve something bigger together than we would on our own, how it tackles the climate crisis must surely be a priority. And yet, Lauren, as of this month, June 2022, we were hearing about the European Parliament voting against adopting a revision of the EU emissions trading system. Can you explain why that happened? Yeah, so this is actually really interesting. It's a bit of political drama going on in the EU over this. So the emissions trading system or the ETS, it's 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 a complicated climate measure, but I guess to, to focus in on what it's trying to do is essentially to reduce some of the emissions that the EU has control over, particularly from things like factories or power plants. Um, and what happened was on this day, MEPs were voting on a change to that as part of this big voting day of climate measures under the Fit for 55, which is the EU's big cornerstone climate package. And a change had been proposed to this ETS by the European Commission. Um, and that would have made it stricter to kind of further reduce down the emissions that it can have an effect on. Um, but then when it got to the Parliament and, it, you know, it was going through the Environment Committee and there were amendments put forward on it. And so what ended up happening was that the initial change made by the Commission, which had proposed to sort of make it stricter, it had been weakened down through that process, particularly from uh, by MEPs sort of on the right. And so then the MEPs on the left decided that 
they didn't want to pass through a change that was, as they described it, watered down. And so there's a very f- f- dramatic few minutes on the parliament floor where uh, those left MEPs were kind of huddling around, deciding what to do. And then the left managed to, to vote down the change. And then in a second vote, it was sent back to the Environment Committee. So what was meant to be a day of voting through a whole suite of new climate measures was really pushed back because there were other votes later in the day that were kind of hinging on that first vote as well. Um, so that's gone back to committee now and the committee's considering it again. It's going to be brought before the MEPs again um, to see can they come to an agreement on it. That's a really interesting insight into how the parliament works, because I think from this distance, we don't really get a huge um, visualization of that. And we need people like yourself to be there and and tell us how it works. And I guess that is concerning for Irish people, for example, because we've seen in our own, you know, Oireachtas that um, we're trying to get legislation through can be a long process. It has to go through the houses, it goes through committee as amendments and so on. But that's within one you know, state. But then when you're talking about the EU, you're doing that, but you've every state involved. So I imagine this isn't just climate. This is a long process by which legislation is passed in the parliament in general. Absolutely. I mean, that fit for 55 on its own, that's been going on for years. It's been going through those various committees. Um, And this was meant to be a sort of culmination of that. And now you can see another stage to this where it's going on even longer. Um, It is, I suppose, one of the... Uh, the drawbacks of the European Parliament the same as you say with, with other individual countries how these things can take very long um, particularly with the way you have the European Union set up where you have the Parliament and the Commission and then the EU Council as well with the heads of state and the way things have to kind of go through the different institutions um, when it can when it can make change when it can get change through it can often be really powerful but actually getting there can be a very long road sometimes with a, a lot of windings and bumps Now We had a live panel event in Galway this month for the Good Information Project where an audience of young people spoke to MEPs about their concerns for the future. And chief among those was the impact of the climate crisis on them. You can imagine that it's it's a huge issue for everybody, but they're looking down the road and going, do you care about we're going to carry the can on this? The overall tone was, interestingly enough, that they felt the EU wasn't taking action quickly enough, which is illustrated by your example there. What are the targets, though, around climate and emissions for the EU and that we're supposed to live up to as well? And what's standing in the way of getting there apart from what we just talked about there? Mm, So the EU's targets, they're they're similar enough to Ireland's, or I suppose maybe Ireland's are similar enough to the EU's because we're obviously mimicking what they're doing. So the EU target is to by 2030 cut emissions by 55% compared to 1990. Ireland's again is 55% by 2030 though it's compared to uh, 2018 so that's obviously a less ambitious target because emissions were much higher in 2018 than they were in 1990. and then by 2050, it's to cut to get down to net zero. So what that means is that we would be putting out, or rather we would be taking back, I guess, as much carbon emissions from the atmosphere as we are putting out, which is still a very complicated area. There's, that kind of involves uh, some technologies that there's still a lot, of, a lot of debate around and some climate activists kind of aren't too convinced by that. Um, but those are those are the overarching targets, I guess, that all of these are, are trying to, to work towards. 
there are things standing in the way. There's there's that kind of political wrangling that we're talking about. I guess that those those difficulties of trying to to get through the legislative process. The you know the left kind of against the right uh, sometimes, and and also I guess getting past the different beliefs. Mm-hmm. in the parliament actually around how big of a problem climate change is in the first place. And you're telling me, Lauren, that is a debate still in the parliament. I mean, considering the IPCC p- report and, you know, looking at the drastic action that's needed to even st- stay standing or stand still, never mind kind of there's no talk of actually, um, I suppose, rowing things back for climate and environment. That's very surprising mm, to hear. It, it manifests, I think, as these debates around how much of a priority it should be. Um, so there, there's not too much outright climate denial because I think everyone on all sides knows that that's not a popular opinion to take. But it does manifest in a deprioritization of climate change from from some groups. Um, and and then also, I suppose, more widely, these kind of disagreements about even when there is an acceptance that it is a problem and that it needs to be acted on, there's there's disagreement often about how that should be gone about and how quickly it needs to happen. So, um, I mean, and, and that's manifested now as well with the response to Ukraine and how that affects energy. And that's actually a barrier in itself to European climate action because, um I, I was in Strasbourg at the European Parliament at the start of March, only about a week or so after Russia had invaded, and I met a lot of the Irish MEPs. And all that everyone could talk about was how the war in Ukraine was completely changing everything for energy. Because obviously we know that a lot of countries in Europe um, would get energy supplies from Russia. Mm-hmm. And really big concerns about how that dynamic now is going to affect efforts to transition away from uh, reliance on fossil fuels because the plan that they've come up with now, the EU, there's a plan called the Repower EU plan and it's that's trying to reduce dependence on Russian uh, power coming into Europe and it has some things in there around renewable energy but there's also a lot around kind of building up gas infrastructure. Now some people would argue that that's important as a transition fuel that you know it, gas isn't as damaging as, as oil or fuel or, or oil or coal and that uh, some countries will have to use it whereas other people would say no absolutely not we can't go back on this we can't be building up our infrastructure for gas and we have to be focusing on the renewable energy so uh, Ukraine in itself and and all of the, the the challenges that are coming with that are now a big kind of sticking point for for climate action and also again those just kind of debates around how do you come at this What's the root of the problem? How do you fix it? Those are uh, kind of holdups, I guess, in the whole process of climate action. That makes sense. And uh, um, I suppose an interesting fact around how the parliament works or, you know, over there as we think about we send MEPs over. And, you know, if you're voting on your ballot sheet, you'll see Fine Gael, you'll see Independence for Change, you'll see Green Party, you'll see Sinn Féin and so on. But actually, when they're over there, then um, depending on what party they're in, they're part of a larger grouping where they can be in with other MEPs. So Fina Gale would be in um, with a particular grouping and Sinn Féin might be with another, depending on their kind of policies and beliefs and so on. Um, so they're also working kind of in a divided way. So I can see how this is an issue. And Lauren, you know, it is 50 years, though, since we, I suppose, our, our own relationship with being part of the European project, um, our referendum in 1972. Um saying that, yes, Irish people wanted to be part of um, the European economic community as it was at the time. So if we're examining now 
50 years on, what the EU does and how that aligns to our own national priorities. The war in Ukraine that you mentioned has probably pulled that into sharp focus. Yes, on the climate and the energy mm-hmm. issues. Um, Ireland has committed to taking into many thousands of uh, Ukrainian refugees, perhaps into the hundreds of thousands. This is not necessarily matched by how the EU at large is handling migration issues. And then on another issue, while there's talk of hardening security in the EU, Ireland is still careful about its neutral status. Are, are we at odds with the EU? Do, do we have common ground? It's a tricky one. And I think what's happening here in Ireland, certainly around the security question, is that our views are becoming increasingly polarised because before people had opinions on it, but it wasn't, it felt very abstract. It didn't feel like something that we were going to have to experience the the lived reality or the consequences of, of a decision around that. Whereas now, obviously, the invasion of Ukraine has, has made it very much more of a tangible thing um, that would have real consequences. So people are certainly forming kind of more definitive positions on it, including politicians. I mean, Tanisha Leo Vradker, he said recently that he thinks it would be possible to win a referendum on Ireland joining a European defence force. I don't know if it's quite that certain, um, there was polling by Red Sea in May, which found that nearly nine in 10 people in Ireland do believe we should remain a member of the EU. Um, but only 59% said it should be part of an increased EU defence and security cooperation. Uh, it was around a quarter disagreeing, 14% still saying they weren't sure. Um, so certainly a swinging of support that yeah, way. Yeah, I think a 59% yeah. is actually quite significant, it, it is, really, given a, our history in that. It is. So. Now, I mean, obviously, this is a poll of, you know, it's, it's a mm. good poll representative sample of a thousand people. But but um, it's still just a snapshot of at a particular moment in time as well. Um, there is, yeah, it does indicate a, a, a movement of support that way, but it's still still not a done deal, still definitely far from certain. Um, we are already in PESCO, which uh, is, I suppose, a sort of framework for EU member states to cooperate around uh, defence projects. So I suppose that's something where we're on some common ground with other EU countries. You know, there's it's 25 out of 27 member states are in PESCO. Mm-hmm. Denmark is one of the ones that isn't, but it actually, it may, may be joining up soon too. Um, and I mean, when that was coming in a few years ago, there was a lot of discussion around that and, and you know, some resistance to it in the doll and that sort of thing. Um, but... Of course, we are still formally a neutral country and I think we're all very interested to see where that takes us over the coming years. We'll see where that goes. Lauren, thanks so much for coming in and explaining all of that to us. We'll give the last word to MEP Maria Walsh, who appeared alongside fellow MEP Chris McManus in front of a youth audience in her live panel in Galway. She told them why she wants 2023 to be the EU year dedicated to mental health. From a very small area where I where I come from, you know, we've lost uh, many lives um, uh, of all ages and, and genders and orientations. So it's a, it's a case of it doesn't see borders. It doesn't see whether um, you know you're you're uh, male or female or other or any form of the rainbow community. It, it doesn't see any of that. Um, so when I that was a huge part of 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 what my 2019, 2019 campaign was and calling for an European year dedicated to mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, land in first day of school in the European <laughs> Parliament and get told, well, it's not seen as a competency of the European Union. I was like, well, that's not great. <laughs> um, but everything is seen as a competency, really. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, we talk about physical health, we talk about, we talk about economic value. Um, and that for me is probably one of the greatest disconnects that we have with the European Union. They look at the economics of it and I get it, you know, uh, you know, mm-hmm. cash flow helps us get from A to B, yeah. but it's also people and the communities that drive that, mm-hmm. 
that in order to get that. So I look at um, the like of the health and safety directive that came in a number of years ago and that making sure slippery signs are out and that everybody's working X period of time and you're not overworking. But why can't we extend that beyond to also include mental health of a worker um, and an employer? Um, and for me, in all its facets, looking at this EU year dedicated to mental health, it is making sure that our policies are cross-sectional. So everything that Chris is doing in agri-committee, we all should be doing in employment and it also should be across any type of committee that we have coming out. Um, and this also goes for any of the relationships we have transnational in terms of the EU or, Af or in terms of US or Africa or further afield. Um, so again, as I said, cross-sectional. Cross um, unfortunately, not all EU years are attached to policy or funding. Mm -hmm. So when I call for an EU year, of course, I'm asking for uh, an empty checkbook that will, uh, that <laughs> will help. Zeros. That will help. Yeah. But to be honest with you, I, I, the more I'm learning about it on a daily basis, you know, no, no X amount of pot of money is going to ensure that mental health is fixed. It helps. It helps that every young person or any person that's going to any third level has access to immediate support. That's a huge help. Mm -hmm. But I also think we need to look at education value too. You know, there's a great pilot project in Finland a number of years ago, um, since, and since the local governments have rolled it out, where they started teaching language at a very young age in, in, in primary school around um, the needs. How do I, I feel? A feeling is upon me, an emotion is upon me. You know, if we had that trans, um, transitional language, as I like to call it, mm -hmm. um, from a younger age, in our school systems, in our work programs, in politics, I think we'd actually be a hell of a lot better adults to ourselves and then to our communities. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Good Information Podcast. Today's episode was edited and produced by Adrian Carty, with research by Carl Kinsler and additional journalism from the Good Information Project team. Go to thejournal.ie to find out more about the entire Good Information Project and email us at goodinformation@thejournal.ie with your feedback and questions. If you want to hear more episodes in this series, find us at the Good Information Podcast on the Journal app or wherever you get your podcasts. The Good Information Project is co-funded by Journal Media and a grant programme from the European Parliament.